0: with answering that question I received regarding the devil. And then we will have in transition time of communion. And then at the end of communion today, we'll begin again was as a custom um, in some time before of taking up a deacon's fund offering. And a deacon's fund offering, if you don't know what that is, it's just a free will offering. That's something separate and different from the church budget, but it's something that the deacons can draw from from time to time to help and assist different individuals those sometimes who are part of the body here, sometimes those who are connected to the body here, and uh, sometimes just strangers um, in different practical, physical ways in helping to meet needs. And um, it's something that's uh, kept as a confidential, and it's also then something that is used and it's a free will gift. So that's how it's funded, is by people free, freely giving to it. And you can at any time designate any gifts to it by just marking it on, on an envelope for, as Deacon Fund. Um, but we used to take up an offering after communion each month, especially um, for that, and we'd like to begin doing that again. And so if you, when, that, when we wrap up communion at that time, then we'll just go right into that um, as it'd be time of giving thanks for God's blessings, and then that time as the Lord leads you to be able to share in that fund. So just wanted to let you know that here at this point, so when it comes, it's expected. Uh, could you take your Bibles and turn with me again this afternoon to First Peter chapter 5? I love getting questions. And um, when I received this one, at first I, I thought, well, that's one of those questions where we say, I don't know. And that's a, not a bad thing to be humble enough frequently to say, I don't know. And in a certain degree, um, the answer to this question is we don't know. Because God didn't give us this question and then give us the answer. But I think that we can discern a little bit of what God's will is in our lives with this question. So, again, the question was if God can do anything, Why didn't he cast out Satan at the beginning? And I'm presuming here that what is meant by asking this question is, is that why is Satan still walking about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour? That's a great question. And in some ways, I kind of have asked that question myself before. And, um, you know, I've been content with a relatively vague answer. But when I got this question... I decided I better come up with better than a vague answer. And it came in God's providence as I was studying and preparing for the message this morning relating to the devil being a lion walking about seeking whom he may devour. And so we're going to spend a little bit of time learning about our adversary this afternoon. But if I could give a very brief answer to this question... Why does God still allow Satan to walk about, to continue to deceive, to continue to seek whom He may devour? I think a very short answer can be found at the end of 1 Peter 5:10. 1 Peter 5:10. It comes after this question, this this teaching that Satan, the devil, is walking about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. But then the focus changes to God and the God of all grace who hath called us into his eternal glory by Christ Jesus. After that, ye have suffered a while. And here I think is the gist of why Satan's still around to make you perfect, establish, strengthen, settle you. Now, you might be saying, wait a minute, Satan doesn't do those things for me. You're right, he doesn't. But when you recognize who Satan is in relation to the God of all grace, then the God of all grace does these things for you. So when you see the horrors of who the devil is, and then you take your eyes off of who he is and the terrible things he does, and you look to God, when you look to God, all the things that he does, the devil, to make you suffer, to cause you to struggle through life, to be feel unsure of yourself, to feel fallen and troubled, weak, when you take your eyes from the devil, who's very powerful, much more powerful than human beings, and you see the God to whom he is accountable to, I believe that when we get a proper perspective of who God is, of who Satan is, and of who we are, this comes comes true in our hearts. We are then... Made perfect. This doesn't mean that we're perfect in the sense of sinless. This means that it's like we go from being a, a, a child who doesn't really have experience and know how to work in this life to one who has grown up and has a maturity and has a has a, where they understand things of life. That's this perfect of maturity established as being established. You're you're not here not sure of things you you have a more sure foundation strengthened is is being made stronger just as it there it's going from weak to being strong and settled the opposite of being settled is, is that you you you're not sure of things you're troubled by things you're you're bothered by things but again when you have a proper perspective of who god is of who satan is who the demons are and who you are your heart can be settled and I think this is illustrated for us in the life of Job. You all know Job, right? So if you turn in your Bibles back to the Old Testament book of Job, we find this man who was introduced for us in Job chapter 1, verse 1, as a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was perfect. Again, this idea of mature, grown-up, having an understanding of life, And upright, meaning that he does those things that are right, and one that feared God and eschewed evil. He not only fled from evil, but with an earnestness. This is Job. He's a godly man, right? Now, if you know the history of Job, you know in verse 6 that there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. We believe that the sons of God here are angels, both fallen and holy. And Satan came also among them. And the Lord said unto Satan, Whence comest thou? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro in the earth and from walking up and down in it. Does this sound familiar? This is Job from way, 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 way in the back back probably the very beginning, earliest times of the Old Testament, like in the days of Abraham. And we find that he was way back then, going to and fro. And you know, he doesn't say it, but we could insert 1 Peter 5 here, as a roaring lion seeking whom I can devour. It's really what he is. It always has been that way. And then you look at verse 8, and the Lord said unto Satan, hast thou considered my servant Job? But there is none like him in the earth, a perfect and an upright man, and one that feareth God, and ensheweth evil. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, "Doth Job fear God for naught? He says Job's got good reason to fear God. Why uh, hast not thou made an hedge about him, and about his house, and about all that he hath on every side?" Thou hast blessed the work of his hands, and his substance is increased in the land. But put forth thine hand now, and touch all that he hath, and he will curse thee to thy face. And the Lord said unto Satan, Behold, all that he hath is in thy power. Only upon himself put not forth thine hand. So Satan went forth from the presence of the Lord. Now what's really intriguing about this history here is that we see Satan moving and we see Satan walking to about we see Satan as the roaring lion seeking whom he may devour but in all of it he is accountable to God and he is limited by God God gives him freedom just like he gives us freedom but yet he is also still limited by God and here God basically releases him and says you can go You can touch everything that belongs to Job except don't touch him. Well, we don't have time this afternoon to go into all of the story, but Satan does just that. He takes Job from being a wealthy man with a large family and many children, and he brings him to a pauper, losing property, losing livestock, losing all his physical possessions, and even losing his own children Left destitute. You know, we talked earlier about the potsherds. There's still one little piece up here left. Good thing, because I needed it for an illustration. The worthless potsherds. This is about all he had left. It's about all he had left. Satan comes back into the throne room of God, we find out, and, he, and God again reminds him, hey, have you been paying attention to my servant Job? Been paying attention to my servant Job? He says, yeah. Because see, Job didn't curse God to his face. Job was still faithful in obeying and believing and trusting in God. And in fact, if we keep looking through it closer, and when we look at the whole life of Job, the whole book, especially coming to the end, we see that what Satan was doing in his life was actually being used of God to bring about a maturity in him, to establish him, to strengthen him, and to settle him. The activity of Satan was being used of God to actually accomplish this in Job's life. Well, you know the account? Job didn't curse God to his face. Satan comes back in, and God points this out to Satan. And Satan says, aha, it's because you wouldn't let me touch him. You would let me touch the man, and he'll curse you to your face. So God gave him freedom. God released him, gave him the permission to attack. Job personally and directly except that he could not kill him and so Satan did just that and he made Job's life miserable to where he took the things he had left of his pauperism and he used it to scratch the boils that broke out on his body from the crown of his head to the sole of his foot Now, some of you kids have no idea what a boil is that's a good thing that means that your parents keep you nice and hygiene (laughs) normally that's what boils come from, is when you're dirty and they cause infections, and the infections swell up and get oozy, goozy, gross, and hurt, and they're, they're nasty. There's other ways you can get boils, but that's one of, the, one of the main ways that you can get it is by being dirty. Now, Job wasn't a dirty person, I don't think, but heh, Satan made him have these boils to where all he had was those potsherds to scratch him. His life was miserable. He wished himself dead. In fact, his wife told him, curse God and die. But in the midst of all of that, of these direct satanic attacks, Satan doesn't always give direct attacks. In fact, actually, I think in America and some of our society, he intentionally chooses not to give direct attacks because we would go, aha, and be a lot more aware of it. Said he's a lot sneakier about it in in our society but here we have direct satanic attacks both on his property and now on his person And in the midst of it all job though he's miserable and though he regrets the day that he was born he actually gives a speech kind of similar to the speech we heard from jeremiah this morning of cursing the day that he was born in the end of it the scriptures tell us that he has sinned not with his mouth And we don't have time to go through the whole story, but there's a combination of an interaction, and it is a great philosophical debate. You want a great crash course in philosophy? Study the book of Job. It's filled with philosophy. And it's really great because it ends with somebody getting the last word. And if you were to go to the end of the book of Job, after all the three friends have given their opinions, and Job has responded to them, and and all of this has gone back and forth, in the end, God speaks to Job. And It's magnificent. And you know what the gist of all of the end of the book of Job is? Behold the Creator. Behold His creation. And all of the trouble that Satan may cause and that sin may cause in this world, look beyond all of that to the Creator. Even though you might tremble in dread of the great sea monster, Leviathan, who breathes fire, though he's the king of all that are proud, you look beyond even that monster, and you see God. And God says, I'm in control of everything. I reign as king. I am over it all. And you know, when we come to the end, we find Job twice in his interaction with the Lord where he falls down, again coming back, 1 Peter, of humility. Oh, when the Lord gives one whole speech about all this creation and all of his omnipotence, and oh, I, I wish we could actually go through here um, the, the interrogation and the, the demonstration of God's glory given in Job chapter 38 and 39. And then it seems like there's a break as the as the Lord comes to Job in the mighty whirlwind, demonstrating his power in the tornado that comes. And the Lord answered Job in verse 40 and says to him, Shall he that contendeth with the Almighty instruct him? He that reproveth God, let him answer it. And all of this, you see all the power struggles of life and society and philosophy and demonism. God reigns supreme over all. And Job answered in the Lord and said, Job 40 verse For behold, I am vile. What shall I answer thee? I will lay mine hand upon my mouth. Once have I spoken, but I will not answer, yea, twice, but I will proceed no further. We see Job humbled. God then goes on and again demonstrates his majesty, his glory, going into eventually coming to Leviathan, all of chapter 41, that great sea monster in the sea. And when all of this is finished, Job 42, Job answered the Lord and said, I know that thou canst do everything and that no thought can be withholden from thee. So the question here, if God can do anything, why didn't he cast out Satan at the beginning? Really, one of the reasons he didn't cast out Satan at the beginning is as a demonstration to us of what Job confesses here. I know that thou canst do everything. Even though Satan walketh about as a roaring lion, he is still one who is accountable to God. None of us can ever claim the devil made me do it. We have a free will and a choice to obey and believe God, or rather I should, to believe and obey God, or to not believe God, and to believe the lies of Satan and disobey. Really, by Satan still having power, it actually magnifies the much greater power that God has. Which, I believe, was the case with Job here when he humbled himself, and I think what it was is he was the one who humbled himself under the mighty hand of God at this point, and it was in this that God made him perfect, established him, strengthened him, and settled him. Actually, God used the roaring lion to help bring this about in Job's life. Isn't that interesting? I found it exciting. I don't know if it exactly answers this question. Um, it answered it for me, and I hope that it answers it to a little degree for the guy who answered the question who would rather not be maybe known publicly. But that's fine. One other thought. One other thought. Did you know that there is a prophecy that Satan will be bound? He will be bound. Actually, if you take your Bibles and you turn with me to Revelation chapter 20, there is a prophecy that in the future, Satan will be bound. Revelation 20 verse 1 is a vision that, saw, that, that John, John the Apostle, saw. he wrote, and I saw an angel, this is a holy angel, come down from heaven having the key to the bottomless pit and a chain in his hand. And he laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil and Satan, and bound him a thousand years And cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal upon him that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years should be fulfilled. And after that, he must be loosed a little season. Guess what? Oh, you see all the titles piled up on this guy? Sometimes titles are cool. These are not cool. That old serpent, that dragon, which is the devil and Satan, he will be bound actually for a thousand years. He will not be able to be deceiving the nations for a thousand years. These be the thousand years when Jesus Christ will reign as King of kings and Lord of lords from Jerusalem on this earth, as is also prophesied here in Revelation. But you know what, sad? Even with Satan cast out, so to speak, with Satan bound, not able to deceive the nations, to deceive people, mankind still goes astray and still goes their own way, turning away from God. And when the thousand years are up, when Satan's released, there are multitudes of people ready to follow Satan in rebellion against Jesus Christ, the King of Kings. And so, sometimes we might say, Oh, if only that old devil, that serpent, that Satan, he'd just be put in a bottomless pit and wouldn't trouble me no more, I'd be okay. You wouldn't you, you, you would be okay, but you wouldn't be okay because he was taken out of the way. You'd be okay only if your faith and trust is in the God of all grace. That's the only way you can be okay is by trusting in him by And just so you know, that old serpent, the devil, according to Matthew 25, I think it's 25, it is said that he is one who will be in the lake of fire, and it has told us that this lake of fire was prepared For, guess who? Do any of you know? The devil and his angels. It is actually in Matthew chapter 24 and. I'm sorry, I didn't look it up in my Bible before. I can quote it. And we're cast into the lake of fire prepared for the devil and his angels. It's one of those verses you learn as a kid and you don't forget it. Twenty-five, forty-one. So I was right that it was chapter 25. Yes, yes. Everlasting fire. This everlasting fire. It says here, was prepared for the devil and his angels. This is a judgment that actually takes place Um, at the beginning of the reign of the Lord Jesus Christ. And and people are cast into the everlasting fire. But you know, the everlasting fire, the lake of fire, that place also described as a place of wailing and gnashing of teeth, of everlasting darkness, hell. Here it tells us it wasn't made for people. It was originally created for the devil and his angels to be cast into into that lake of fire. And at the end of Revelation, we find that coming true as Satan is finally and truly and permanently cast into the lake of fire. Any follow-up questions? I know I gave you a lot. I wish we could interact a little bit. Um, Does that answer the question? Does it help you understand why Satan's still here and yet also understand that God's going to deal with him? Any questions? Okay. Let me take in, as we transition into the time of communion, which is a time in which we partake of the bread and the cup in remembrance of what Jesus did for us. I'm reminded of Genesis 3.15, where we have what's called the Proto-Evangelicum, which means Proto-First Evangelicum Good News Declaration. The first declaration of the good news is when Satan was actually talking to that serpent. And he said to that serpent, I will put enmity between thee and the woman, between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head Thou shalt bruise his heel, and he shall bruise thy head. That bruise idea is the idea of crushing. Yes, Jesus Christ was the seed of the woman, born of a virgin in the fullness of time. And when Jesus Christ died on that cross, the power, everything, though Satan, yes, has been accountable to God from the very beginning, He's, he's utterly defeated judicially when Jesus Christ crushed him and his power that day when he died on the cross. And though Jesus' body was broken and though Jesus' blood was shed, the power of Satan judicially, that means in the big picture of things, was crushed. And he knew it. That's part of the reason why he is so desperate to roar as his lion is, but really he roars for those who have put their faith in Christ in vain because his power is truly been crushed. Jesus accomplished that when he died on the cross, and it was fully accomplished when Jesus rose from the dead. And all of that is anticipating the day when the final judgment of Satan will be when he is cast into the lake of fire forever and ever. And so really, we look back again, even in this, to the cross, to the cross, to Jesus giving his life so that the power of Satan, the power of sin, the power of death could be defeated. And so as we gather around this table, let us give thanks.